page 12 in your notes. And before we pick up where we left off last week, let me just mention two things. One, at the beginning of this notebook, we have a recommended resource section. And on our first week, I highlighted some of those books that I would recommend over the others. They're all recommended. That's why they're in there. But if you're only buying one or two, I recommended uh, some of those for you. But our crack staff in uh, the Resource Center has been able to get all of the books, not just the ones that, uh, that I had uh, recommended first. And uh, so they did some research, were able to find some of those were a little bit harder to get, but they got them. They are in the Resource Center. They are displayed in there. So if you want to go in and peruse those, I would encourage you to do that. And the other announcement I have is this Saturday at 10 o'clock at our house is our next newcomer's brunch. A few times during the year we have a brunch at our house and it is called the newcomer's brunch and that pretty much explains what it's about. It's brunch at our place for those who have never been to one of our brunches. So that's mostly for newcomers, although you may be a long time uh, tender, maybe even have joined the church, but at the times when the other brunches were scheduled you weren't able to make it. So we consider you a newcomer if you've never been to one of our brunches, no matter how long you've actually been here. And we would love to have you at our house and get to know you uh, better and just enjoy uh, your company. Uh, So that is for anybody who hasn't been to one of our brunches. If you have been to one of our brunches, then we will turn you away at the door. We know know who you are, okay? Some people try to sneak in for an extra brunch. It's not happening, okay? (laughs) Well, it does taste good. Thank you, Smokey. And Kim puts on a mean brunch, so... Uh, if you can come, that would, be, that would be great. But we need to know you're coming so we know how much of that terrific food to make. And uh, you do that by going to the information desk uh, before you leave today. We need to know that really today is your last chance to register for that. And you will get an invitation that has the address to our house, our phone number, uh, reminder of the date and the time. But it's this Saturday, 10 a.m. to about noon at our place. There's no program for that. It's just uh, us getting to know you in an informal setting. If you have any questions for me about our church, then that's a good time for you to ask those. And I'm happy to try to answer them as best I can. But it's not a formal program, just a, a fellowship brunch. And we would love to have you this Saturday. All right, t- page 12. In our notes on the series, What's the Difference? And we are looking in this series at differences between biblical Christianity and its, its rivals, uh, other claims to truth, including world religions, but also uh, denominations that fall under the heading of Christianity. And we started in our look at world religions, looking at Islam. And we're looking at Islam for what is probably obvious reasons to all of you, Uh, Islam is very prominent in the news, has been certainly for the last uh, 13 years since uh, September 11 of 2001. And as I said at the beginning, it's meant that many of us have become familiar with terms that we had not known uh, in years prior. Things like uh, the Koran and names like uh, Muhammad and Osama bin Laden and terms like fatwa and sharia and those kinds of things have become kind of household words now uh, for us. Uh, We looked last week at what the Koran teaches about the use of force because that is a key issue for many of us as we try to get an understanding of what Islam is and, and what it teaches. And in Appendix A in your notes, if you weren't here last week, these sessions are recorded, and so you can go on our website and listen to that if you, if you care to. But we looked at Appendix A, which is about uh, Islam and, and terrorism and what the 
what the Koran teaches about the use of, of force. But now we left off on page 12 looking at some background with regard to the rise of Islam. And I read the first several paragraphs at the top of page 12, but I want to redo that to give us the context, and then we'll move on from there. The Muhammad's followers referred to their belief as Islam, which means submission to God. And as I pointed out last week, that's contrary to what many say, that Islam means peace. Islam does not mean peace. Uh, that is nothing other than a political correctness uh, trying to redefine a word uh, in for the current circumstances. But Islam means submission. And those who followed Muhammad came to be identified as Muslims, that is, those who submit to God. Eventually, Muhammad's group of followers grew so large that the city fathers in Mecca found their presence undesirable. After all, nothing ruins the business of idol worship, which was going on in Mecca, like the incessant claim that Muhammad made that there is only one God. And so, in effect, he was driven from Mecca, and he moved from Mecca, as you see in that next paragraph, to a town called Medina. Persecution escalated until 622 A.D. Muhammad and a group of his followers fled Mecca for Medina. This flight from Mecca is called the Hijra, meaning flight, and it's used as the beginning of the Islamic calendar. So 622, as I said last week, is year zero on the Islamic calendar. Muhammad and his followers were well-received in Medina, and in fact, Muhammad was put in charge of the town and the responsibility of resolving certain disputes. He made a special pact with the Jewish community in Medina, recognizing that Jews were not expected to become Muslims. Unfortunately, the relationship broke down when some Jews attempted to assassinate Muhammad, and he ordered the execution of hundreds of Jews. Throughout this time, Islam continued to grow in numbers and influence. Many Arabian tribes swore allegiance to Muhammad, adopting his religion and his leadership. Eventually, he and his army became strong enough to capture Mecca. Muhammad removed all idols from the city and cleansed the Kaaba of all statues in a special ceremony. However, he retained Mecca as the center for pilgrimage and maintained some of the external sites, such as the Kaaba and, and the well Zamzam, as holy places. By the time Muhammad died in 632 A.D., he was the religious and political head of much of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, that's obviously a very quick summary of the career of Muhammad and the rise of Islam through him. But then, in order to understand what's happening now in Islam, it's, it's important to know a little something about what occurred after Muhammad died, because a battle occurred for leadership, taking the place of Muhammad. And you will see some terms in these next paragraphs that you'll recognize from the current headlines. So notice what we say, Islam after Muhammad. An understanding of the events that occurred right after Muhammad's death is crucial to an understanding of the contemporary Muslim world. The question of who would succeed Muhammad was and is one of great controversy. The search for a caliph. Now, some of you have heard that term, perhaps in the news. Uh, and that is a, a successor. You, you, perhaps you've heard the term caliphate and, the, and ISIS and, or ISIL is attempting to establish an Islamic caliphate that would be, that would be governed by uh, a successor uh, from Muhammad, a caliph. The search for a successor was on. Because Muhammad had no surviving son, one choice was his son-in-law, Ali. However, Ali did not enjoy the confidence of many people. Therefore, a, cons a general consensus, and the Arab word for consensus is sunnah, was established that Abu Bakr, Muhammad's father-in-law, would be the caliph. Ali's supporters were disgruntled, and at that moment, the seeds of a dissenting party were sown. 
The Arabic word for the splinter group was Shia. And thus we have the origin of the Sunnis, the majority, and the Shia, the, the minority. So the Sunnis and the Shiites, they, they come out of this split after the death of Muhammad and the search for a successor, and that has continued for all of these centuries since in, in very, very, very hostile fashion. I mean, if you, uh, I mean, there's great hatred, as you know, for America and for Israel on the part of, on the part of uh, many Muslims and, and certainly many Muslim countries. But the hatred between Sunnis and Shiites is, is intense as well. And you need to look no further than in the 1980s, the war between Iran and Iraq, Sunnis against Shia, and they took no prisoners in that. And uh, it, was a, it was a bloody, 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 and lasted, I believe, eight years throughout most of the 1980s uh, between Sunni and Shia. Second to the last paragraph there on page 12, Islam continued to expand over the next several decades, reaching as far as Spain in 732 A.D. Eventually, the longest-running Islamic dynasty came into being by way of the Ottoman Empire, which at one time included all of the Middle East, Egypt, and Europe up to the gates of Vienna. The Ottoman Empire finally collapsed in 1917. So this was a centuries-long, spectacular, really, uh, culture and empire, and had many, many, many achievements, many achievements in science and mathematics, for which Muslims are justly proud. Just, I just warn you when I give just an editorial comment, this will be a quick editorial comment, and then we will move on. But in, in my study of, of Islam, uh, this and then the current uh, scene, international scene, there's a resentment amongst Muslims about having such a marvelous culture at one time and having that in their minds taken away from them. So much of what you see now is resentment over a time that used to be and a desire to reestablish that time, coupled now with the teachings of the Koran that establishes a desire for an Islamic state, a caliphate, which you're reading about in the news now. All right, Osama bin Laden is part of an extremist strain of Islam which originated from the ranks of the majority Sunni faction. His background, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is rooted in Wahhabism, a reform movement from within Sunni, Sunni Islam. So that is where it came from. That is who founded it. Those are the years involved. And then that is some of what happened in the aftermath of Muhammad's death that gave rise to many of the factions that, that you see now. Now on page 13, we have the beliefs of Islam. Islam is primarily a religion of practices, not beliefs. So when we say practices there, we mean this. It is a religion of works. That in order to have a relationship with God, it's about what you do. And that will become important as we contrast biblical Christianity with with Islam in just a bit. Maybe we'll have time to do that today, if not, certainly next week. But Islam is primarily a religion of practices or works. Not, not beliefs. It does not mean that it's possible to have Islam without certain beliefs or that beliefs are irrelevant. It means the central question is whether or not a person submits to Allah. And nevertheless, six core beliefs have been identified. And I'll just hit these quickly. Believing in, in one God. The Quranic conception of Allah is strictly unitarian since God is seen as one and one only. Muhammad considered the very notion of the fatherhood of Allah, which he associated with a sexual procreation of a son as highly blasphemous, which, by the way, it would be if that were true. Uh, 
One verse in the Quran suggests that he may have thought the Trinity consisted of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and Mary the Mother. Behold, Allah will say, O Jesus, Son of Mary, didst thou say unto men, Worship me and my mother as gods in derogation of, of Allah? And we're going to see some other misunderstandings, very important misunderstandings that Muhammad had about Christianity in just a bit. So that's one of the core beliefs, the oneness of God. There's a belief in angels and spirits and also of prophets. And under prophets, according to Islam, from time to time, God has disclosed his will to the world through prophets. All the prophets preach the same basic message of submission to the one God and impending judgment. The Quran provides no definitive list. Most of the 25 prophets mentioned in the Quran are biblical figures, including Adam, Noah, Abraham, and, and Jesus. Now, let me just say this is a very key contrast then between Islam and biblical Christianity, and that is who is Jesus? And in biblical Christianity, Jesus is God. Jesus is God having become man. In Islam, he is a great prophet. And they revere the Jesus of Islam, but that's not the Jesus of, of the Bible, as we will see. So a key difference between Islam and biblical Christianity is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And that's the central question in contrasting biblical Christianity with every other ism as well. Who is Jesus? And Islam answers it quite differently than, than the Bible does. And then related to that is the next core belief, and that is of the holy book, the Koran. Because in order to identify who Jesus is, that is going to have to be sourced in some authoritative resource. And in the case of Islam, that is the Koran. In the case of Christianity, of course, that is the Bible. So this issue of what is the authority? From where do you derive teaching about who Jesus is and how we have a relationship with God and, and all of that is then a, a foundational issue. So under books, many of the prophets left books for their people. Jews and Christians have their holy books just as Muslims have the Koran. And these groups in Islam are known as people of the book. And Muhammad allowed them privileges and protections not available to pagans. Upon paying a tax, they were supposed to be allowed to practice their religion and lead an unencumbered life. And then Islam believes in judgment. And then if you look on the next page, it believes in the sovereignty of God and his will. And then there are five pillars of Islam that are practices that a faithful Muslim will engage in. So the praying five times a day, you see, under confession. Then the prayer that many of us are familiar with. The fasting at Ramadan. Uh, the giving of charity, and then, if at all possible, in one's lifetime to make a pilgrimage to, to Mecca. Now, that is Islam, where it came from, and then very briefly, what it believes and, and practices. But what we want to do here is contrast, then, what Islam believes with biblical Christianity, and that's what we have beginning on page 15. Critiquing the Quran. Both Islam and Christianity have writings to which they appeal as final authorities. The Quran is the holy book of Islam and believed by Muslims to be the word of Allah as revealed to Muhammad. The Bible, the holy book of Christianity. Are they consistent in what they teach? If not, how can one determine which is right? This section will contrast the claims of Islam and Christianity regarding authority. And the Bible offers a test for the authenticity of a prophet from Deuteronomy 18. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command them. 
If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. Let me just stop there. Uh, If someone claims to be a prophet, someone claims to be a prophet today, here's what God's saying. You better get it right. And you better get it right every time. So there is a teaching that is current out there that there's such a thing as fallible prophecy. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, but it's, it's rampant in evangelical circles that you can have prophets who don't get it right. And God says, no, you've yeah, you got to get it right. So, you know, you take charlatans like Benny Hinn, okay? Uh, We'll talk a little more about him later in this class, but everybody know who I'm talking about? Benny Hinn on TV, one of the guys who collects a lot of money and teaches false stuff. Uh, Benny Hinn, uh, I heard him say with my own ears, uh, Benny Hinn has made a number of false prophecies, but I heard him make this prophecy where he said in a crusade, He said that Holy Spirit revelation is coming upon me. And then he said this, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each a trinity. They're each a trinity. Well, you got to do the math on that. And and Benny did in his prophecy. And he said, what I'm saying is, quote, there's nine of them. He was asked about that a few weeks later by a Christian magazine. And Benny replied by saying, that was a dumb statement. But you said this was revelation from the Holy Spirit. And see, a prophet only gets one shot to get it right. Now, you know, if you were here for the first hour, I said one of my struggles, one of my besetting sins is, you know, is getting angry sometimes, and especially getting angry if I think somebody's insulted me personally. And then I get angry at dudes like, like Benny. And so what I'm going to say is one of my anger rants, and then I'll move on. I'll ask forgiveness, and then I'll move on. But according to the Bible, Benny's supposed to be stoned. All in favor? <laughs> I mean, really. The guy is out there huckstering and, and fleecing God's people who are in their lack of discernment allowing that to happen. And you have lots of people doing that, friends. And God calls us to be discerning. And this is what God's Word says about what a prophet is. All right, go back then to page 15. You may say to yourselves, continuing to quote Deuteronomy 18, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So we've quoted that here because we want to see now if what Muhammad said is accurate. Muhammad's a prophet of Allah, that's, that's the claim. We want to test that claim. The Bible offers you a way to test that claim. And then if you look in the middle then of page 15, the Christian scriptures offer numerous prophecies, approximately 300, regarding the coming and career of Jesus the Messiah. The Quran offers no predictions, but it does make some claims that can be objectively evaluated. And here are three. The Quran con- claims to confirm the teaching of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. The Quran claims that it makes clearer the teaching of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. And the Quran claims that Muhammad is foretold in the Jewish and Christian scriptures. So let's test those three things. Does the Quran confirm, make clearer the teachings of the Jewish and Christian scriptures, and is Muhammad foretold in them? 
First, does the Koran confirm the Bible? The Koran says this, O ye people of the book, believe in what we have now revealed, confirming what was already with you. So what has been said now through Muhammad in the, the Koran is confirming what it is you already had. But at many points, the Koran contradicts the teaching of the Bible and does not confirm it at all. And here are some brief examples. On the death of Jesus, we saw this last week. The Bible clearly taught that he would die and be raised from the dead, Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus also said in Luke 24 that his death and resurrection was what the prophets before him had foretold. He said to them, this is what I told you while still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And why did he do this? Jesus explained the reason. Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But what does the Koran say about this? The Koran says, as we saw last week, we, the Jews, slew the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God, yet they did not slay him, neither crucified him. Only a likeness of that was shown to them. And they slew him not of certainty. No, indeed, God raised him up to him. God is almighty, all wise. So in the Koran, it's just a very straight up, Jesus was not crucified. And the crucifixion is central to uh, all, that is, all that is Christianity. So far from confirming the teachings of Scripture, this contradicts it. Jesus taught that his death on the cross was to pay for our sins and that it was part of God's work that he came to perform. The Koran says Jesus' death on the cross is no death at all. Thus, the Koran does not confirm at this most important point. And here's another example, the account of Noah. The Koran also incorrectly retells many of the biblical accounts, and here are just two. first one is about Noah and his sons who came into uh, the ark. The Bible says that Noah, along with his sons, did that. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this journey. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. You're all familiar with that. The Koran says one of Noah's sons did not come into the ark. And Noah called to his son, says the Koran, who was standing apart, Embark with us, my son, and be thou not with the unbelievers. He said, I will take refuge in a mountain that shall defend me from the water. And the waves came between them, and he was drowned. Now, that's what, that's what the Koran says. And again, direct contradiction to the Bible. And then you have, page 17, the plagues of Egypt. The Bible records in great detail the plagues that God sent. It's found in Exodus chapter 7 through 11. And a summary of the plagues is given. But in the Koran, we're told that one of the plagues was a flood. And if you go through the Bible, you won't find a flood as part of the plagues brought upon Egypt. But in Surah 7, so we let loose upon them the flood and the locusts, the lice and the frogs, and, and so on. So the Koran clearly does not confirm biblical teaching. It actually contradicts it. And in the case of the cross and the death of Jesus, contradicts it on the central feature of 
biblical teaching. But now to the second claim that the Quran makes clearer the teaching of the Bible. The Quran says this, The Quran is not such as can be produced by other than Allah. On the contrary, it is a confirmation of revelations that went before it and a fuller explanation of the book. Goes on to say, Verily, this Quran does explain to the children of Israel most of the matters in which they disagree. Now, we're going to see that it doesn't make clearer uh, as, we, as we go on. But let me just stop here and say, you may ask yourself, where does the Quran, where does Islam uh, teach that Christians and Jews went awry with their scriptures? Uh, because uh, the, the scriptures teach something different, as we're going to see, than, and have see, already seen to some extent, than what the Quran teaches. So what's the explanation for that from an Islamic standpoint? Now remember, this is important. Islam came about in the 7th century A.D. So the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures have been completed for centuries at this point. So any contradictions are going to have to be explained by Islam because Christianity has already been around for quite a long time. So how is, is that explained? Remember uh, last week I told you I had a, a co-worker when I had a real job, my computer programming job, and uh, he was of Pakistani origin. And he and I would discuss religion often. And I asked him about some of these contradictions. And he said, uh, well, you, you know that the Bible has been corrupted. And I said, well, who, who corrupted it? And, and just take a wild guess, who, who corrupted it? The Jews. I mean, there's a real antipathy toward the Jews. The Jews corrupted the Bible. And uh, we continued to talk, and as he was wont to do when we would have these discussions, he would talk about how the Bible, even the Bible, portrays the Jews in a negative light. He was quite anti-Semitic. And he would say, even the Bible portrays the Jews in a negative light. And, of course, you have the Jewish religious leaders conspiring to uh, crucify Jesus, and he knows that, and so he's saying even the Bible shows them as, as killers. So how can you be friendly to the Jews and friendly to Israel and so on? And then I asked him, I said, you know, just in this discussion, you've said a couple of things about the Jews. One, they corrupted the Scriptures. And two, the Scriptures they supposedly corrupted show them as being corrupt. So... If they corrupted the Scriptures, they did a really lousy job. Right? I mean, if you're corrupting the Scriptures, and you're the one doing it, aren't you going to make you look good? So it's clear evidence that the Jews did not corrupt the Scriptures because they are shown with warts and, and all, as are all of the even prophets of, of the Bible in the Bible. But that's the claim that is made to account for these, these differences. So does the Quran make clearer the teachings of the Bible? Well, on the death of Jesus, in the Bible, the death of Jesus on the cross is very clearly explained. And we've looked at a number of those passages, and you're all familiar with those. But look at the top of page 18. The above quotes show that the Bible explains the death of Jesus very clearly. But when the Quran is read, it does not make clear of the Bible's teaching. Instead, it actually confuses this teaching. It does this by teaching that Jesus never died on the cross, as we have seen. And then there is this issue of Abraham's sacrifice. Now, you, many of you know the story of Abraham 
and Abraham awaiting a promised son that was promised to him by the Lord. And the Lord tested Abraham's patience in the, in the giving of this son. Uh, and Abraham became impatient in waiting for this promised son to come. And in his impatience, he had a child by one of his handmaids, Hagar, and that child was named Ishmael. And Ishmael is the father of the, of the Arab peoples. And as, a, as the chosen descendant of, of, of Abraham, God later miraculously gives him the chosen son, Isaac. Isaac's name means laughter, just because you can't make this stuff up the way God, the way God did this. And, uh, and he's the Abraham, and then through his son Isaac, the father of the Jews. And the Bible predicts that there will be an antipathy between the descendants of, of both. All right, so then God... Uh, at a later time, says to Abraham, I'm going to test your faithfulness and your trust in me. I've now given you this promised son. You've waited all this time. And now I'm going to ask you to sacrifice Isaac. And you remember in Genesis chapter 22 that Abraham sets out to obey the Lord, but the Lord intervenes and uh, provides a ram in the thicket, and he does not have to uh, sacrifice his son. All right, that's the, that's the biblical story, and we have it listed for you there in Genesis 22. But notice the paragraph there from Genesis 22. I have three times highlighted the name Isaac, because Isaac is the son in the Bible that God told him to sacrifice. It was Isaac, right? And the rest of the Bible also teaches that, middle of page 18. Isaac was the son that Abraham offered in sacrifice, both in Hebrews 11 in James 2, the account of Abraham's sacrifice is also told in the Quran. However, the account is not very clear. In particular, the identity of the son is not explicitly stated. And so Surah chapter 37 talks about it, but it just simply mentions the son, but doesn't mention the name of the son. Bottom of page 18, since the identity of Abraham's son is not mentioned, it's led to all types of confusion for the Muslim community. Al-Tabari is one of Islam's great historians of the Quran. He freely admits that the early Muslim theologians were not sure which son Abraham offered. Some thought it was Isaac, others thought it was Ishmael. In fact, Al-Tabari even says that there are reliable hadiths, that is, reports from the teaching, oral teaching of Muhammad, some of which say it was Isaac and others which say that it was, it was Ishmael. Now, notice this next paragraph. This confusion comes to a climax with this Muslim festival that occurs during the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. At this festival, an animal is sacrificed to remember the time when Abraham offered not Isaac, but his son Ishmael. And this is the practical belief of many, many Muslims. Again, my Pakistani friend. It was his belief that, that Abraham sought to offer Ishmael, not Isaac, as the, as the sacrifice. So here's the Quran saying that it makes clearer the teaching of the Bible when in fact it hasn't made it clearer at, at all. And then with regard to Jesus' title as the Son of God. In the Bible there is a lot of teaching about the Son of God. This teaching is quite clear. The Quran also has much to say about the Son of God. However, it does not confirm or make clear the Bible's teaching. Instead, it misunderstands and actually confuses what the Bible clearly taught. And here you have Matthew 16 and Matthew 26 where Jesus takes to himself this uh, and accepts this title for himself, the, the Son of God. And then the question is now, does the Quran make clear the Bible's teaching about the Son of God? The answer is no. In fact, the Quran misunderstands and confuses this teaching from the Bible. Throughout the Quran, it denies that Jesus is the Son of God, yet mistakenly still calls him the Messiah. 
So here's Surah 4. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was no more than God's apostle and his word, which he cast to Mary. The Christians say the Messiah is the son of God. This is the utterance of their mouths, conforming with the unbelievers before them. God assail them, how they are perverted. And then Surah 10, they say God has begotten a son, God forbid. Now, do you see what's happening here? Muhammad misunderstood this phrase, Son of God, to be that God the Father had a baby and that he sired a child with someone. And that leads to the confusion about Mary as the mother of, of God as, as well. And so they consider it blasphemy, but, and it would be if that's what Christianity taught. But Muhammad misunderstood what Christianity taught with regard to the Son of God. Now, uh, let me just take a moment to clarify what the Bible does teach about Jesus being the Son of God because I have found that many Christians actually are somewhat confused about that as well. That uh, when Jesus was born in uh, Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago, that was not the beginning of his existence. It was the beginning of his mission come to earth in order to live and die for the sins of, of his people. It's the beginning of his mission. But he is called the, the Son of God. He is also called the Son of Man in, in Scripture. The phrase Son of in Scripture means this, to have the characteristics of someone or something. To have the characteristics of someone or something. Let me give you an example. Noah was called in the Old Testament the, quote, the son of 500 years. In Hebrew, it's literally, he was the son of 500 years. So if son of means to have the characteristics of something, what does it mean to be the son of 500 years? It means you have the characteristics of somebody who's really old. I mean, that's the Bible's way of saying this guy was really old, okay? In the New Testament, you have uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, called the sons of, do you remember their nickname? The sons of thunder. Well, what does that mean about them, the sons of thunder? It doesn't mean they're literally the, the children of, of thunder. It means they have the characteristics of thunder. These guys were unpredictable, loud, and boisterous. Barnabas it was his nickname given to him by the other apostles, which means son of encouragement. So in his actions and in his words, he had the characteristics of one who is, is encouraging. So Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He has the characteristics of both God and man because Jesus is God and man in one unique person. It does not mean that Jesus was begotten in terms of a, a birth like, like we are. And yet, that was the misunderstanding of Muhammad. And as a result, he thought that Christians blasphemed when they said Jesus is the Son of God. So far from confirming or making clearer the teaching of the Bible... Uh, it contradicts the Bible. All right, top of page 20 then. Is Muhammad foretold in the Bible? That's this third claim of the Quran that we can objectively test. Those who follow the messenger, says Surah 7, that is Muhammad, the prophet, who can neither read nor write, whom they will find described in the Torah and the gospel, which are with them. The Torah, that is the Old Testament, the gospel, the, the New Testament, and they will find Muhammad described in them, says the Quran. The passages normally cited for this prediction are in John 14 through 16. 
But these are not prophets, prophecies of Muhammad, but of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know the prophecies of the Holy Spirit? Because it says, Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. But then John, recording the words of Jesus, says who this counselor is. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So this passage is cited as the Bible predicting the coming of, of Muhammad when, in fact, the Bible says very clearly that the one who will come and be given is the Holy Spirit. Now, again, what will be said with regard to that? Why did that happen? Because who corrupted it? The Jews corrupted the, the, uh, the Scriptures. Now, the, the interesting thing, of course, with all that is, is we have these, all these manuscripts that are around long before the Koran was ever, was ever written. So, you know, the Jews had some work to do to get all this stuff, uh, all this stuff corrected. We've seen that the Koran contradicts the Bible on some important doctrines like the death of Jesus. The Muslim explanation is that the Bible has been corrupted by Jews and, and Christians, and especially Jews. In addition, middle of that page, to contradicting the Bible, the Koran is simply an error in a number of places. As has already been seen, another example is the Koran mistaking the identity of Mary, the mother of Jesus, for Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. Now, here it is in Surah 19. At length, she, Mary, brought the babe to her people, carrying him in her, in her arms. They said, O Mary, truly an amazing thing hast thou brought, O sister of Aaron. I just, now, of course, Moses and Aaron lived approximately 1,500 years before Mary. So here's Muhammad with a cursory understanding of Christianity, things he had heard verbally taught. He heard the name Miriam, Moses, Mary, and he conflated those, and it's a simple error in the, in the Koran. Now, most important, what I want us to, to look at then, that's Islam. That's where it came from. Those are some of the, er frankly, outright errors in the Koran, contradictions. The Koran makes the claim that it confirms, makes clearer the teaching of the Bible. It does not. It contradicts it. That it predicts the coming of Muhammad. It does not. So it can be tested in terms of it valid its validity on those objective bases. But with all of that, the most important thing I want you to see is the difference between biblical Christianity and what Islam teaches about sin and salvation. And that's what we'll look at on the, the following pages. Islam defines sin and therefore righteousness and salvation radically different from biblical Christianity. In Islam, sin is moral weakness, but not our nature. We sin, but we are not sinners by nature. In fact, Islam denies the doctrine of original sin. Now, friends, this is... this could not be more foundational because how you see the problem will affect how you see the solution and in Islam is the problem is moral weakness and what we therefore need is moral reform individual moral reform we need to clean up our act and we clean up our act by following the dictates of the of the Quran and obeying the Quran but in the Bible the problem is much 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 deeper than that it's not just bad stuff we do. We do bad stuff because we're bad. It's not that we uh, are sinners because we sin. We sin because that's what sinners do. We are sinners. 
And the Bible teaches that that is our nature, and we have that at conception and then birth. And so there has to be a radical change then of the individual from the inside out. But in, in Islam, if you define the problem as one of moral weakness, then the solution is moral reform. But the Bible says it's much more than moral weakness. It is a problem with our nature, and that nature has to be radically transformed. In Jesus' words, you must be born again. You must have a new nature from above. And that is, in a nutshell, the difference between not only Islam and biblical Christianity, but every one of the things that we're going to look at moving forward. And I was just telling someone the other day, in fact, I think it was my Wednesday class, so if you're in my Wednesday class, you can bow out now. But I was saying that the, if you want, in a nutshell, the difference between biblical Christianity and everything else, it's this. That in every other ism, there is a ladder extended from you to God that you have to climb. And the religion simply tells you what the rungs on that ladder are for you to climb. In biblical Christianity and biblical Christianity alone, the direction of that ladder goes from God to us. And God comes from heaven to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he does what we cannot do for ourselves. And God does not say, you by your works and by observing these practices make your way up to me. God says, you are mortally wounded, you are dead in your sins, Therefore, you cannot climb the ladder, and in my love, I come to you. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But it's only that good news if you understand the bad news. And the bad news is, it's not just we do bad stuff, it's that we're bad. And by nature, we are sinners, and our nature, therefore, has to be changed. And at the middle of page 21, that's what we say from the Bible. The Bible teaches middle of page 21, a quite different view of human nature and consequently of righteousness and salvation. Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you, anyone who's angry will be subject to judgment. You have heard it said, as we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount these last few weeks, do not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery already in her heart. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Page 22, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. And who is that one? None other than Jesus himself. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for who? The unrighteous to bring you to God. And that is why in these famous verses in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the Bible can say it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And that, that faith does not come from you, it comes from God. Not by works. Not by works. So that no one can boast before God.
Now, friends, that's the good news. That's the gospel. And that is contrasted with every other ism out there, including Islam. And as we conclude today, we're going to bow and pray as we do each week. But here's what I want to urge you to do. As you've come to this series for the last few weeks and you've seen some things that, the Bible, that Islam teaches versus what the Bible teaches, you've seen a clear contrast. And you are now presented with the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ to be your God and your Lord and your Savior. And he has come to do what you can't do. He has come to pay the penalty for every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit, past, present, and future, with his death on the cross. He came and lived the life that you and I were to live, but because of our sin have failed to do. He lived perfectly. Because he lived perfectly, his death on the cross was acceptable to God the Father on our behalf. And he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So what that means is you place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his perfect life and his death are given to you, accounted to you personally. So that God no longer sees you now through your sin. He sees you through the perfection of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Now, how do I do that? The Bible says, he who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when we pray here in just a moment, you can do that from your heart to God. And the Bible says you do that, and God is moving in your heart to make you born again, give you life from the inside out. So that now you are being radically changed in your nature. Your sin nature is being changed to God's nature. And you want to follow him with your life. You still won't do that perfectly, but the good news is Jesus has already done it perfectly. And the gift of God, the Bible says this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can have that gift right now. So we're going to bow and pray. And as you do, if you've already done that, you've come to God through Jesus Christ, and he's changing you from the inside out, giving you this new nature. Let's thank him for that. And if you have never done that, I urge you to do that right now from your heart to God. Call upon the Lord. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, your word that stands the test of time, that stands the test of all rivals. Lord, many have come claiming to be prophets, claiming to be truth, but none of them can stand up to the truth of your word and your prophets who gave it. The consistency, the non-contradiction written by 40 authors over a 1,500-year period, your Bible has all of the marks of being your word. And we thank you for the good news that's contained in your word, the good news of the gospel centered upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I affirm my belief and our belief that Jesus is God that Jesus came to earth to do what we could not do. And we thank you profoundly with our lips and with our lives that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserved. I pray, Lord, that I will live a life of gratitude for all the days you give me here and that all those who have come to you will likewise do that. And I pray especially that there are some right now who from their heart to you are calling out to you in their own words from their heart acknowledging that indeed they are a sinner there is no work and no works, there is no merit of their own that they can do in order to climb to you, but thanking you that you have come to us and receiving the gift 
of the life and death of the Lord Jesus and thereby having eternal life that only you can give. Oh, Father, we thank you for this, and we thank you in advance for the work that you are doing in the hearts of some who you are drawing out of the world and to yourself, transforming them from the inside out. Go with us this week then as we live as those who have been transformed by the gospel, having been born again by your spirit. We pray that you will bring us back safely next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.